This week, a discussion on Civil War naval warfare, highlighting instances of guerrilla attacks on U.S. waterways. Southern Utah University professor Laura June Davis describes pro-Confederate sympathizers who sabotaged Union vessels. At the start of the war, the U.S. Navy is in a very unique position in its history. It's actually the stronger military force, right? Think about it. We fought England in the War of 1812, England in the American Revolution. Usually we are the, the smaller military force. But this time, the U.S. Navy is going to be stronger. More after this. Last class, we talked about the start of the Civil War and some of the key land battles, right? And we also compared the Confederacy and the United States in terms of size, manufacturing, military capabilities. Today, we're going to kind of branch away and talk about things that are less known about the Civil War. We're kind of going to get away from terror-centric narratives and focus on the things that I research and write about and get the most excited about, naval warfare and guerrilla warfare. And we're going to even touch on some of my own research. So, to start out with, I'm going to share with you a story from my research. You don't need to take notes on this, okay? I'm just going to tell you a story. The Ruth, that's the ship behind me, left Cairo for Vicksburg around 11 p.m. on August 4th, 1863. Most of the passengers retired to their cabins and fell into blissful sleep. All was quiet. All was calm. Safely away from the shore, the Roos captain, Benjamin R. Pegram, and Union paymaster Major Nathan Britton took a reprieve aboard the hurricane deck, one of those upper decks of the steamship. And they're enjoying the solitude of the evening and the soothing churning of the steamer's engine. Ironically, their conversation actually turned to the innate danger of steamboat travel. Just before midnight, a man interrupted them with news that a fire had broken out at the far end of the boat in a carpenter shop beneath the ladies' cabin. And then things get very frenetic. Captain Pregum hastily departed to find first mate James Kane. The warning bells clamored. Flames rose quickly over the larboard wheel and carpenter shop. And disturbed from his peaceful repose, first mate James Kane rushes out to help without his clothes or his shoes on. He tried to put out the flames with water buckets, but the blaze only grew and grew. Chief Engineer Peter Vanderwood said, Kane, it's of no use. We can do nothing. And so they're going to shift their focus to rescue. Meanwhile, Paymaster Britain has rushed down to check on the federal funds. This boat is carrying four U.S. Treasury boxes that are carrying $2.6 million that are supposed to go to Ulysses S. Grant's army. Both the guard and the 600-pound boxes are where they're supposed to be, but they're not going to be there for long. Within minutes, the whole cabin is enveloped in flames. Smoke cloaked the steamer, passengers crowded towards the front of the ship, and oxygen and comfort became very precious commodities. Within 20 minutes, the upper portion of the steamer has fallen into the hull, crashing into almost all of the money. Meanwhile, the Ruth has violently shifted off course. Um, She collides into some river bluffs, threatening the lives of everybody aboard ship. Several passengers jumped overboard, figuring it was safer to be in the water than in the burning ship. Kane tries to secure the ship to the shore via chain cable, but it's not there long enough for him to do so. And so there's no way to stop the ship from burning or to stop all the money from literally going up in smoke. The burning flames and dense smoke encircled the steamer. The dark night turned bright, and the smells of smoked hickory, singed wood, and sweat mingled together as fear became palpable. Panic passengers continued to rush forward, tripping over one another and crashing into Paymaster Britain. Others just decide to just keep abandoning ship again. They think the Mississippi River is the safer option. The combination of bacon, 
coal and wood created a heat so intense it actually fused iron. The steamer's engine's pipe exploded, the wheel stopped, and the cable train dragged, hindering the Ruth's journey. She's gonna go two more miles before she finally sinks into the mud. Now the Ruth's destruction and incineration results in thousands of dollars of damages, plus the complete loss of all of that government money. Even more gruesome is the death of 26 people, and that includes a union paymaster, three clerks, um, an African-American woman, and three freedmen. Most of the casualties are actually drowning victims who fell into the water when the fire collapsed the ship's plank. And once the crew um, kind of comes to the situation, they realize that most of the crew has survived, but they've lost most of the passengers. Early reports claim that, quote, there is no satisfactory theory as to how the fire originated, but locals believed it to be the work of naval guerrillas working on behalf of the Confederacy. And you all know this is what I research, right, is the people who actually destroyed the roof. So the tragic demise of the roof, we will find out afterwards, is in fact an intentional act of sabotage. Somebody intentionally set it on fire in order to hurt the U.S. government and the U.S. military, right? So this is intentional sabotage. And this is the start of a trend that we see happening along the Mississippi River in the Civil War, is that pro-Confederate sympathizers are going to intentionally target commercial steamboats on the river. These naval guerrillas, they're often called boat burners, right? This is U.S. history. We lack creativity. They burn boats, right? Um, they began setting fire or blowing up commercial steamboats in the summer of 1863. Now, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but if you know your Civil War history, right, two very important things happen in July of 1863. The famous Battle of Gettysburg that I hope you all have heard of, right, but it's also the fall of the city of Vicksburg. Vicksburg was a Confederate holdout on the Mississippi River. And remember how we talked about the Anaconda Plan? The U.S. is trying to get complete control of the Mississippi River. Vicksburg is one of the last holdouts. When Vicksburg falls on July 4th, 1863, the U.S. can claim to have complete control of the river, right, and fulfill that part of the Anaconda Plan. Well, now that the Mississippi River is under U.S. control, the Confederates are frustrated and angry, and they're going to resort to acts of guerrilla warfare on the water, right? The boat burners are trying to challenge and resist U.S. military control. So they're going to go after commercial steamboats that are offering trying to aid or supply the U.S. military, right? And so the reason I started with the Ruth is because this is the intersection of our two topics for today, naval warfare and guerrilla warfare. So here's the game plan for the day, right? We're going to focus on, broadly speaking, the two different navies of the two nations, the U.S. and the Confederacy, right? We're going to look at different aspects of the naval war, so how it kind of plays out internationally, looking at some naval technology and a couple of key case studies, right? Then we're going to shift into the guerrilla war, define what guerrilla warfare is, and again, look at some examples of guerrilla warfare. So your focus as you're taking notes, right, is going to be on um, how the U.S. Navy compares to the Confederate Navy, um, what some of those key naval case studies are, be able to define guerrilla warfare, and then give me some of those case studies. Okay, That's what I want you all to focus on. There's going to be a lot of statistics today. So first up, two nations, two navies. Right? The U.S. will have a navy, and the Confederacy is going to try to create one as well. And as we're talking about naval aspects of the war, I want you to remember that the naval war happens across the globe. So the U.S. and the Confederacy are actually going to fight on five different oceans, 
and on dozens of rivers, right? When they're not fighting one another, the U.S. Navy is predominantly doing blockade duty to fulfill the Anaconda Plan, and the Confederacy is trying to run the blockade, right, to challenge it. Naval ships from both sides also serve as um, transport vessels for troops. They carry supplies and weapons and food for various armies, and they even serve as floating warehouses, universities, and recruiting depots. So first up is the U.S. Navy, right? And again, don't get bogged down in all the details. But at the start of the war, the U.S. Navy is in a very unique position in its history. It's actually the stronger military force, right? Think about it. We fought England in the War of 1812, England in the American Revolution. Usually we are the, the smaller military force. But this time, the U.S. Navy is going to be stronger. And this foreshadows the entire naval war for the Civil War. It's always asymmetrical. The U.S. Navy is always going to be bigger, stronger, have more ships, have more people, right? On the eve of the Civil War, the U.S. Navy had about 7,600 enlisted sailors and about 1,500 officers, right? 1,554. Lincoln's going to try to recruit more sailors, right? He's going to ask for 18,000 more men to enlist in the Navy. But all of these new recruits are going to have very minimal naval experience. So you're going to have people who are trying to work and man boats that don't know what they're doing, right? Always a, a great idea for success. Um, at its max strength, which is in early 1862, the U.S. Navy will have over 50,000 men, about 51,500, plus an additional 16,880 laborers. Um, and those would be mechanics, right, people working on the ships. The total number of people who work in the U.S. Navy, so this is over the course of four whole years, is over 100,000, 101,207. 15% of those will actually be African-American men who are able to enlist in the Navy starting in 1863. So that'll be about 18,000 people. Most importantly, the U.S. Navy has boats, which you need if you're a Navy, right? Um, at the start of the war, they have 42 vessels, but that's misleading because only four are actually in the United States and operational. The rest are either trolling international waters or they're in port trying to get repaired. But the U.S. Navy will go on a massive shipbuilding spree, and by the end of the war, they will have 671 vessels. So they will become one of the largest navies in the world, right? 418 of those were converted merchant ships, right? They will buy ships. They will convert ships. A lot of these were wooden steam and sail sloops, but they will also get involved in building ironclads. We'll talk more about those in a minute. So that's the U.S. Navy, right? looks pretty strong. Lots of men, over 100,000, right, over 670 ships. They are a quite substantial military force on the waters. Then there's the Confederacy. They do not start off well, right? They basically start out with officers and nothing else. No ships, no enlisted sailors, right? There had been a substantial number of naval officers who resigned from the U.S. Navy at the start of the Civil War after Fort Sumter, about 373 of them, but not all of them will find their way into the Confederate Navy. Some of them end up in other elements of the Confederacy. So they'll have some officers, no enlisted men, and as I've mentioned before, no ships. Because when those U.S. soldiers resigned, they didn't take the ships with them. That was federal property. So they decided to keep the federal property and give it back to the government, right? So we have men and no ships. This is a problem. 
At max strength, the Confederacy will have just shy of 5,000 men, 4,966, and they reach their max strength late in the war in April of 1864. We don't officially know how many men served in the Confederate Navy because the records aren't all available, but we believe it to be a total of six to 7,000 men across four years. Because the Confederate Navy has no ships, they're going to have to, what I like to say, duct tape a Navy together. Get ships any way that you can. Buy them, build them, convert existing ships into war machines, right? Do whatever you can. So they will purchase a whole variety of ships, steamships, cargo ships, ferries. They build boats. They buy boats from Europe. They rehab commercial vessels into war machines. And the um, Confederate war building, shipbuilding enterprise is going to happen on two fronts, right? I think we've mentioned this before, but the Confederate naval war is very much an international war because they're relying on England and France to build boats that they're going to purchase, right? So most of the Confederate shipbuilding happens overseas, and there's usually a middleman. So they're going to buy the ship from England or France, but they're going to pretend it's not really the Confederacy buying it, right? And then once they have the ship and it's in international waters, they will rename it, raise the Confederate flag. So there's always kind of like a plausible deniability. Um, so um, a lot of the shipbuilding happens in England and France, including in Liverpool. And in fact, Liverpool is where the CSS Shenandoah is constructed, and we're going to talk more about that later. Right? But there is some domestic shipbuilding that happens. Right, The Confederacy doesn't just buy all their boats. Um, Confederate shipbuilding happens in places like Norfolk, Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Mobile, Alabama, um, and New Orleans. So the con Confederacy is quickly going to realize that there is no way they are ever, ever, ever going to be able to compete with the U.S. Navy. I mean, think about it. You have max strength of, you know, 5,000 men versus max strength of 51,000 men, right? Total men, six to 7,000 versus over 100,000, right? Few, very few ships versus 671 ships. There's no way you can compete. And so that, like I said, that naval war is always asymmetrical. And so the Confederacy realizes that they're going to have to take on different strategies and tactics if they want to be able to compete against the U.S. Navy. They know they don't have the financial capability, the manufacturing capability, um, the materials, or the men to compete. So they're going to do a couple of things, right? They're going to focus on three key ways that they can enhance their naval efforts, right? Number one, Jefferson Davis, President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy, is going to issue letters of mark. We talked about letters of mark in the War of 1812, right? When you issue a letter of mark, you are giving a private ship captain the ability to do acts of piracy, in this case we call it privateering, right, on behalf of your country, right? So you can do illegal things, what would normally be illegal things, but you're getting legal sanction because I'm issuing you a letter of mark. I'm literally giving you a document that says you can do these acts of um, privateering on behalf of the Confederate government. And this is a huge win for Jefferson Davis, right? He needs men and he needs boats. He's basically privatizing a Navy by doing this, right? He can add to his maritime forces by doing these letters of mark. Secondly, the Confederacy is going to experiment more with naval technology. They're going to do a lot of innovative things when it comes to technology. They'll be the first one to build an ironclad in the U.S., right? They beat out the U.S., 
Um, ironclad technology technically predates the Civil War, but they are going to experiment with it a lot more. They're going to use explosive devices, which in the 19th century we called torpedoes, right? And you can see a picture of one behind me. This is what one of the torpedoes looked like, right? So literally they're having explosive devices in the waterways that if a ship went over, it would cause it to explode, right? And then they're actually going to help design and test out one of the very first submarines, Okay, so they're going to use a whole lot of experimental naval technology because they're willing to take risks because they have nothing to lose, right? They're already at such a huge disadvantage. And then the last thing that the Confederacy does, right? So they issue letters of mark. They use experimental forms of technology, right? The last thing they're going to do is employ the naval guerrillas that I write about, right? They're going to use boat burners. They will literally pay people to sabotage or destroy commercial steamboats and other vessels. And I've been able to identify at least 40 different commercial steamboats that they've been able to destroy. Um, and they are potentially getting paid out by the Confederate government in gold and money, right? So the Confederate Congress has sanctioned this to happen. So now that you understand some of the things that the Confederacy is doing and the fact that they're using experimental technology, I want to look at one of the specific types of technology they're using. And that's the ironclads, right? The ironclads are some of the most fascinating naval technology of this time period. So probably the most important contribution of the Civil War to naval warfare writ large is going to be the wide-scale use of ironclads. Like I said, technically ironclads have been used before this, but they will never be built to such a scale, and this will be the first time ever that we see an ironclad fight in ironclad, right? Ironclads will be used by both the U.S. and the Confederacy, right? And the primary feature of them, they come in various shapes, sizes, and designs, but the primary feature is the fact that it's some iron-plated armor that's put on board a wooden ship. Hence the name, ironclad. You're taking a wooden ship and you're cladding it in iron plating. The thickness of that plating might vary, right? Um, the U U.S. Navy will also build completely iron-hulled vessels known as monitors. Okay, but both sides are developing and evolving their ironclad technology. And the reason why they're going to be so committed to ironclad technology and probably one of the most important battles of the Naval War for the Civil War is the Battle of Hampton Roads. This is one of those gold star in your notes moments. I love the Battle of Hampton Roads, right? So to give you some setup here, because again, we're just kind of doing some case studies in naval history and not everything. Um, Confederate Secretary of the Navy, Stephen R. Mallory, he um, has, and his men have captured a U.S. vessel. It was known as the Merrimack. And they are going to convert this existing U.S. vessel, turn it into a Confederate war machine, and specifically into a Confederate ironclad. They're going to rename her the Virginia, the CSS Virginia. Right? And the purpose of this ironclad, the Virginia, and what um, Stephen Mallory is hoping to do for all ironclads is to use them to target the U.S. boats that are doing blockade duty, right? He wants to be able to fire on and destroy U.S. blockade ships so that way he can weaken the blockade. So they started, the Confederates have started building their ironclads first, right? They're building the Virginia. The U.S. is going to find out what the Confederacy is up to. U.S. Secretary um, of the Navy, Gideon Wells, is going to find out what 
the Confederacy is up to because a former enslaved woman by the name of Mary Tavestri is going to steal the blueprints. She works for one of the engineers who's rehabbing the Virginia. She's going to steal the blueprints, go from Portsmouth and bring them all the way to D.C., and this is dangerous, right? She's a former enslaved black woman, and she's traveling to the U.S. Capitol. She's never caught, never captured, never arrested. And they actually believe her when she shows up with these blueprints, right? It's a pretty remarkable story. But now the U.S. Navy and the U.S. military knows what the Confederacy is up to. So they're like, we should probably start building our own ironclads. So Gideon Wells is going to um, create a board, a kind of a commission, to come up with a various designs for ironclads. They'll have three different designs, but one of the most famous is the monitor. That's the monitor, the low-sitting one, right? So the battle is going to unfold over two days, right? The Battle of Hampton Roads is a two-day battle. It's going to start with the Confederate ironclad, the CSS Virginia, and she's under the command of flag officer Franklin Buchanan. And yes, I keep using the word she because in the 19th century, ships were always referred to as female. Right. So Franklin Buchanan is in um, control of the Virginia. She leaves Norfolk and she's headed out to go get these U.S. vessels that are on kind of blockade duty. She's going to go after the USS Cumberland. At around 2 p.m., she rams right into the USS Cumberland with her 1,500-pound iron ram. And that basically kills the Cumberland, right? Um, there's going to be a giant hole in their hull because of this ramming. Next, the Virginia goes after another U.S. ship, right? The USS Congress. And the Congress is like, this is a bad idea. So she decides to run aground rather than face this crazy ironclad vessel, right? In turn... The Virginia is just going to keep firing on and pounding on the Congress with her broadsides until eventually the U.S. vessel just surrenders. So day one, March 8th, ironclad versus wooden ship, ironclad clearly wins, right? She's destroyed all the U.S. wooden ships. But things are going to look a little different on March 9th, 1862. And that's because in the night, the U.S. ironclad, the USS Monitor, has showed up in the region. Right. This is happening all Hampton Roads, which is right in the Chesapeake Bay area, if you're looking for geography. Right. The Monitor is this crazy, radically designed ironclad ship. Okay, it looks like a floating raft. As you can see, it sits really low in the water. And then it's got this turret that can literally fire 360 degrees. Okay. But it looks kind of creepy when you're out there like fighting and all of a sudden this low raft comes at you. So it's the morning of March 9th. The USS um, Minnesota is be getting ready to be attacked by the CSS Virginia. Okay, the Virginia is, again, going after another U.S. wooden boat. But before she can reach the Minnesota, the Virginia spots this U.S. ironclad, the Monitor, right? So now the ironclads are going to face off one another in, like, this epic naval duel, right? Ironclad ship versus ironclad ship. The Virginia fires on the Monitor. The Monitor fires on the Virginia. Nothing's happening. Because they're both ironclad ships, so any fire is just kind of bouncing off the side of the ships, right? So each side is deflecting the other's cannon fire. Um, the Virginia tries to ram the monitor, but the monitor is able to outmaneuver her. And eventually, both ships are going to leave the area only because the tide's lowering and they need to get to safety. So day two, March 9th, 1862, ironclad versus ironclad, it's a draw. Nobody wins. 
And this is what's going to be so revealing about the Battle of Hampton Roads and why it's so important. Okay, this will forever change naval warfare because now we have a new super important naval technology. Right? Wooden ship versus ironclad or armored vessel, we know the ironclad's going to win pretty much every single time. We saw that on March 8th. But ironclad versus ironclad, it's anybody's game. It's a potential draw. Right? That's what we saw on March 9th. So now the U.S. is going to commit itself to ironclad technology. The Confederacy is going to com um, commit itself to more ironclad technology. But so are navies across the world because now we've seen an epic duel between two ironclads. So this is going to spawn a huge change in naval warfare and technology that impacts not just the U.S. and the Confederacy, but the greater globe. And then the U.S. enters into what we like to call monitor mania, which basically just means they're going to want to build more and more and more ironclad ships. Okay? So this is why the Battle of Hampton Roads is so important and why I wanted to make it one of our key case studies about the naval war. Now, the naval war itself kind of plays out in a variety of ways. Right? There are some epic battles like Hampton Roads, but for the most part, the naval war is actually kind of boring. Right? It's usually tied to the Anaconda Plan and the blockade. So I know we talked about the Anaconda Plan last class, but just to remind ourselves, right? this is Winfield Scott's great strategy on how the U.S. is going to try to win the war, and it has two parts. Right? We're going to blockade the entire coastline of the Confederacy, Right? So we're going to blockade both the Atlantic seaboard and the Gulf of Mexico. And the reason they want to blockade the, the entire coastline is because they want to prevent the Confederates from getting ships in or out. Right? They want to hurt the Confederacy economically. If Confederate boats can't get their cotton out to Europe, they can't make money. If they can't make money, they can't finance a war. Right? And if Confederate ships can't bring goods and food and supplies in from Europe, that's, again, it's going to hurt the war effort. So this is an economic-focused um, style of warfare. But the second part of the Anaconda Plan is to gain complete control of the Mississippi River. Right? And we talked about last class why that's so important. Because if you gain complete control of the Mississippi River, you've now split the Confederacy in half. But more importantly, you take the Mississippi River with that blockade, and now you can slowly circle and choke the Confederacy into surrender, the way that an anaconda snake would, which is why it's named the Anaconda Plan. Now, when you're actually trying to fulfill the Anaconda Plan, if you're the U.S., right, that means most people, most sailors, are going to be doing blockade duty. Blockade duty is boring. You are out on the water, staring, hoping to maybe find a ship. Right? That's really boring for hours and hours and hours on end. You're like, oh, is that a ship? Nope, that was a bird. Right? Super boring. Right? And they've got a ton of territory they're trying to blockade. There is 3,500 miles of coastline that they're trying to blockade. They're trying to blockade 189 river mouths and navigable inlets and harbors. You can't do it. Right? You can't build an entire wall in the ocean to do this. So they're going to have to be selective on where they focus the blockade. Right? They're going to target big cities like Charleston, South Carolina, and Wilmington, North Carolina, and Mobile, Alabama, and New Orleans. But I want you to think of the blockade as like a sieve. Okay? You block some things, but ships will be able to get through the sieve. Right? You know, like when you're sieving pasta, right? things will be able to get through. 
Um, they will have a variety of bases of operation because ships have to get refueled and resupplied. So they'll be in places like Cape Hatteras, Port Royal, Pensacola, Florida, New Orleans, Mobile. And the blockade is pretty successful. They capture 1,500 blockade runners. It's pretty good, right? Especially for the Confederacy who has so few ships to begin with. So if you capture 1,500 of them, that's a big deal. And by the end of the war, the blockade's so effective that it's actually crippling the Southern and the Confederate economy, right? Confederacy is going to suffer massive amounts of food shortages, um, massive amounts of lack of supplies, huge amounts of inflation. So the blockade will be effective. But saying that, I don't want you to think that the Confederacy just sits idly by, okay? They're not just like, oh, we're going to be blockaded, right? So they will do everything in their power to challenge the blockade, right? They will sink those torpedoes, those explosive devices. So they will actually sink obstructions into key waterways like Savannah River or Charleston Harbor. And they're doing that so federal boats can't get in, right? They can't go after and hunt blockade runners. But if you can't get federal boats into the rivers, then the U.S. Navy can't target key Confederate towns or port cities either, right? They develop very sleek, fast ships, white blockade runners, that run the blockade. And they will usually operate in the middle of the night, right? That's when they're trying to get in and out of port. Or they'll take advantage of the weather. Like if it's a super foggy, cloudy day, that might be when they try to run the blockade, right? Because again, they want to resist the U.S. government in any way that they can. And blockade running is pretty successful, especially early in the war. 75% of blockade runners make it through. That's why I say the blockade's a sieve. If 75% are making it through, you're only stopping about 25%. We believe that there are about 8,000 successful round trips. Right? This is why some scholars have referred to blockade running as the lifeline of the Confederacy. Because this is how the Confederacy supports itself, economically especially. Right? But this is how the Confederates are able to get much-needed food, supplies, luxury items. So you've got Confederate agents that go to Europe, and they buy a whole bunch of stuff. Right? They get arms, ammunition, gunpowder, coffee, wine, silk, hoop skirts, right? both necessities and some luxury items. And they will ship all of those items to the Caribbean, to places like Havana, Bermuda, Nassau. And it's there in the Caribbean, Bermuda, Havana, Nassau, that the blockade runners are waiting. And these blockade running ships are then going to load themselves with these supplies, and they're going to try to make a super quick trip back to the Confederacy, right, and try to sneak in to bring in these much-needed supplies. Okay, so blockade running is super important to the Confederacy just trying to exist. Now, the Confederacy is willing to take risks, right? They have blockade runners. They invest in naval technology. And because they're doing all of these things, the U.S. Navy has to respond, right? We talk so much in this class about cause and effect and contingency. Well, one of the cause and effects here is that because... Sorry, I didn't realize you didn't, hadn't seen that slide yet. Is that because the um, Confederacy is taking risks, the U.S. Navy is going to have to change their tactics, so I told you that the Confederacy went to England and France and places in Europe to buy ships. They're specifically buying a type of ship known as a commerce raider. And so I need to tell you what a commerce raider is and why the Confederacy needs them. Right? So at the start of the Civil War, the Confederacy is using privateers. Right? Individuals who have letters of mark who can do essentially legal acts of piracy. 
Lincoln, right, President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, knows this. And he's like, we got to stop privateering. So Lincoln's a savvy legal mind, remember? So he's like, I'm not going to recognize the Confederacy. The Confederacy is not a separate, independent country. If it's not a separate, independent country, it cannot issue letters of mark. Right? So if you have a Confederate letter of mark, you are not an actual privateer. You are now a pirate who's doing acts of treason against the United States, and I can arrest and imprison you. Right? So this is all about how we craft the law and how we go after the privateers. And so think about this. What should have been a very enterprising, profitable deal for you to be a Confederate privateer is now super risky because you've been declared a, a traitor and a pirate by the U.S. government, and they will capture and imprison you, right? So people don't want to be privateers anymore. This is too risky and daunting. So by the end of 1862, the Confederacy realizes they can't use letters of mark anymore. They can't use privateering. So that's where they're going to shift to commerce rating. Commerce rating is when you have an official Confederate boat that is manned by official Confederate sailors. Both privateers and commerce raiders do the same thing. They're both trying to target U.S. boats, especially U.S. Uh, merchant vessels or, or trading ships, right? They're trying to destroy them or capture um, their cargo and their crew. But the difference between commerce raiding is that it's actual sanctioned ships with actual com um, Confederate sailors. And the Confederacy needs to do this because Lincoln has rewritten the rules, right? Commerce raiders are pretty successful. They will travel around the various international waters. And Confederate commerce raiders actually destroy 284 U.S. merchant and whaling ships. Okay, so they are doing some economic damage out on the seas, going after whaling ships and various merchant vessels. The most famous commerce raider, or one of the most famous commerce raiders, I should say, is the CSS Shenandoah. This is one of my favorites. So again, this is a gold star moment in your notes. The CSS Shenandoah started out as a 1,160-ton steam cruiser. She was actually built to be part of the Chinese tea trade, and her original name was the Sea King, right? So she's initially launched from Glasgow, Scotland in August of 1863. But then the Confederates secretly buy her, and then they rename her the Shenandoah. And the CSS Shenandoah will start operating on behalf of the Confederacy in October of 1864. Right? Remember, the naval war can be international. So the Shenandoah is out there in the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean. She captures um, two vessels. She sinks seven more. And then in January of 1865, she makes it all the way to Melbourne, Australia. Okay? She's at the opposite end of the globe from the Confederacy. She hangs out in Australia for a little while, and then she's going to keep operating in the Pacific Ocean, going after U.S. merchant vessels and whaling vessels. Now, let's think logically about this. You're a Confederate ship. You're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. How do you know when the war's over? You don't, right? There's no Twitter. There's no WhatsApp. There's no Instagram. There's no, you know, Robert E. Lee sending you a text message, hey, I surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse, right? There's no way for you to know it's over. So the CSS Shenandoah is going to keep operating in the Pacific Ocean even after the Confederate armies have all surrendered, right? She, this will be the last um, parts of the Confederacy that will surrender. 
In April of 1865, after the war is basically over, she will have some of her most successful ventures. She will actually destroy 32 vessels. Uh, finally, in August, she gets word that the Civil War is over. <laughs> Oops, our bad, right? And so she will secretly go back to England. Um, she goes back to Liverpool. They hand, the Confederate soul, um, sailors wait till like a, per, a foggy day so they can do this when no one knows. Um, they surrender the ship to the British, and then they kind of try to fade away so they don't get captured or punished for doing all this extra legal stuff after the war is over. So the naval war, right? Your takeaways, the things that I want you to really remember, right, is that by April 1865, the U.S. has now amassed the largest navy in the world. We went from being a small mar maritime power to a massive maritime power. We've spent $587 million, and that's 1860s dollars, to build 671 warships carrying 4,610 guns. And this is mainly because of Secretary of the Navy um, Gideon Wells' initiative. Because the U.S. Navy has become so large, right, as we've said several times, the naval war is always asymmetrical, right? The U.S. Navy is always stronger, bigger, more successful. That's why the Confederacy had to take all those risks and do much more experimental things. And lastly, the U.S. Navy does win some key battles itself, right? We didn't get to talk about all of them, but they do win some key battles. But more often than not, the U.S. Navy is working in conjunction with the U.S. Army. So don't think about Army versus Navy. Often they work together in combined operations. And they're often kind of the unsung heroes of a lot of these battles that we'll be talking about for the rest of the week. Okay, So that's like your crash course in naval war with some key highlights. But remember, since we're touching base on what I researched, that's only half the story. We also have to look at guerrilla warfare, right? Since I look at the intersection of naval and guerrilla warfare. And the truth of the matter is, for many Confederate citizens, they're never going to experience the Civil War as we study it. They're never going to see these big armies marching by. They're not going to go watch these big battles. They're not going to hear gunfire or cannons. But what a lot of Confederate civilians will experience is acts of guerrilla violence, because that is going to play out in their neighborhoods and in their towns. So for many rebel citizens, their Civil War is characterized by the guerrilla war. So what is guerrilla warfare? We should probably have a good definition. And this might be something I ask you, right? Guerrilla warfare is what we call irregular warfare. This is when you use non-traditional tactics. So these are things like ambushes and surprise raids, attacks on private property, even murder, right? Irregular styles of combat. So attacks and raids and murder, right? Doing things that a conventional army would never do or at least is not supposed to do. The guerrilla war is often ca uh, characterized as being chaotic and disorganized and savage. In fact, one of the most famous books about civil war guerrilla warfare is called A Savage Conflict to describe what's going on. We see it more typically in the Confederacy. Remember, the U.S. goal was to control and occupy all of that territory of the Confederacy. So often, guerrillas are rising up against the federal forces that are trying to occupy that territory. They're trying to resist and challenge the U.S. But saying that, I want you to understand that there are pro-Union guerrillas and there are pro-Confederate guerrillas. Guerrilla warfare happens in all theaters and all areas. It's just more typical in the Confederacy, and we see it most often in places like Missouri, right? 
Guerrilla warfare will intensify as the war goes on. It gets more and more extreme. Um, and it does have a profound impact on how the civil war plays out. Now, guerrilla warfare, there's no one clear definition, right? There are many different types of guerrilla fighters, right? There tends to be a spectrum of guerrilla warfare. So, on your right, right, are partisan rangers. Partisan rangers are the most like traditional soldiers, right? They are legitimate combatants that just happen to use guerrilla types of fighting, right? In 1862, the Confederate Congress passed the um, Partisan Ranger Act, which meant that you were allowed to sign up to become a ranger on behalf of the Confederacy instead of signing up to become a soldier. So partisan rangers have uniforms, they have command structures, their leaders have commissions by the Confederacy and their leaders have to report to the greater army, right? But even though they act and look kind of like Confederate soldiers, they do acts of guerrilla warfare. So they will target civilians. They will go after especially enemy communications lines and telegraph wires. They go after logistical lines and railroads. Right? I'm going to talk to you about Mosby's Rangers in Virginia. That's a good example of a partisan ranger. The middle group, right? This is what most people think about when they think about Civil War guerrillas. They think about bushwhackers, right? Small gangs of like ar grizzly armed men with like lots of knives and revolvers, right? They're called bushwhackers because they tended to hide behind the foliage and the forest lines, what the U.S. called the bush. Right? So they're kind of hiding in the woods, and then they pop up, go surprise, attack. Bushwhackers do a lot to hinder the U.S. armies or the enemy armies. They often augment post-battle chaos. Um, and they do tend to operate in gangs more in the hinterlands rather than in big cities. So again, we see a lot of bushwhackers in places like Missouri. Um, they have no affiliation with the Confederate Army. So they are completely separate from the official Confederate forces. They do not wear official uniforms. That being said, there are leaders. There is a little bit of a, a minor command structure. And they have an unofficial uniform. Um, a historian by the name of Joe Beeline has been doing some great work on what he calls the gorilla shirt. They're essentially a homespun, uh, homespun hunting shirt that has a lot of fancy embroidery and flowers. Right? The um, wives and sisters of gorillas would make these shirts for these gorilla fighters. Right? William Quantrell is one of the most famous examples of a guerrilla fighter, or a bushwalker fighter. At the bottom end of the spectrum are the gray bands and the brigands. A grayback is a very negative term. It was a 19th century slang term for body lice. So that should tell you what people thought about the brigands and the graybacks, right? These are the lowest of the low. These are essentially criminals who take advantage of the Civil War to do a lot of acts of irregular violence. So they're not much better than criminal gangs. They forage the countryside, they prey on the enemy, and they embrace criminality. And then things get complicated because this is our conventional spectrum, right? And it tends to focus on land battles. Things get complicated when you look at who I study, the boat burners and the naval guerrillas, because they intersect with all of these different categories, right? Boat burners are self-constituted um, groups of saboteurs. They use secrecy to engage in sabotage and arson and murder. They focus their attentions exclusively on the waterway, and they actually board the ships they're targeting. Bushwhackers might fire from the shore, but boat burners are going to intentionally board the ships they're targeting. Initially, the boat burners will use like explosive devices and torpedoes, 
they actually use something that's called a Courtney torpedo. It looks like a piece of anthracic coal, but it's hollowed out to be filled with gunpowder. You leave that on the coal pile in the steamship, right? The engineer has no idea. They shovel the coal into the fire, and then boom, a bomb has gone off, right? They will use that. Later on, especially in 1864, they change tactics, and what they'll do is they'll board a ship that's docked, a commercial steamship that's docked, and they'll set it on fire because a wooden ship is super flammable, and if it's in port, that fire can bounce from ship to ship to ship. So by setting one fire, you've actually destroyed seven or eight boats, right? So they engage in a very much a hidden war that operates in the sinister intersections of irregular warfare, sabotage, and espionage, right? Essentially doing acts of proto-terrorism. Now, because it was hard to differentiate bushwhackers from civilians, the U.S. military is going to actually have to codify what makes a soldier and what makes a guerrilla fighter. And this is where the Libra Code, or General Orders 100, comes into play. This is all about how can the U.S. deal with guerrillas. So the U.S. Army, specifically U.S. General Henry Halleck, went to a Columbia scholar by the name of Francis Lieber and was like, can you write me a code of conduct for the war? Right? This has never been done before. This is one of the very first times that codification of the laws of war has happened. And we still use the Libra Code and General 100s as an inspiration for our modern-day notions of the laws of war. So according to Francis Lieber and this Libra Code, or General Orders 100, there are three things that make you an official soldier. You wear a uniform, you have a command structure, and you have the capacity to deal with prisoners of war. That's what makes you a soldier, a command structure, a uniform, and you can deal with prisoners of war. If you can't do all three things, then you're not officially a soldier. Bushwalkers cannot do this, right? That makes them illegal combatants. And if they're illegal combatants, you can treat them differently than a soldier, right? A captured soldier, you have to, right? A soldier, you're, you're supposed to capture. You're not supposed to just murder, right? You can hold them as a prisoner of war. But a bushwhacker, you can shoot and kill because they're not an official combatant, right? That's what makes them different. Um, the Libra Code goes on to talk about things like how you treat civilians and property, right? You're not supposed to harm unarmed civilians. You're not supposed to murder, enslave, or carry off them. Again, this is something that a guerrilla fighter would do. They might murder, carry off, or kidnap somebody. And then he talks about military necessity. He says, uh, military necessity refers to the needs of those measures which are indispensable for securing the ends of war and which are lawful. So you can do a lot of things that might not seem okay, but it's allowed if it's going to bring an, an, a quick end to the war. But there's still a line you can't cross. You can't poison people, can't do acts of revenge, you can't be cruel or deceptive. Right? Guerrilla warfare starts as soon as the Civil War starts. And guerrilla warfare is appealing to people because it gives you a lot more freedom than just being in the U.S. Army or the Confederate Army, right? You don't have a command structure. You can stay super close to home. You can actually defend your, fans, your friends, your family, and your communities. And as more and more federal occupation is happening, we see more and more acts of guerrilla warfare. So I'm going to really briefly tell you about two. One of the most famous incidents of guerrilla warfare is what happens in Lawrence, Kansas with William Quantrell in 1863. We've talked about Lawrence, Kansas before with Bleeding Kansas. It's actually a hotbed of anti-slavery, pro-union sentiment. Okay, so pro-Confederate sympathizers like William Quantrell see Lawrence, Kansas as like the symbol for everything that they don't like. 
The U.S. government's trying to go after Quantrell and gorillas in Missouri. So they've actually arrested some of the wives and girlfriends and imprisoned them in Kansas City. And they're in a federal prison that in um, August of 1863 collapsed. Four of the women die. The gorillas are furious, right? They may be guerrilla fighters, but they have a code of conduct. And they're furious that their women have died in this federal prison collapse. So they're going to go after the U.S. government, right? They're going to go after the pro-union sympathizers in Lawrence, Kansas. So on August 21st, 1863, William Quantrell leads 450 raiders on Lawrence, Kansas. They are trying to just level this city. And think about what Lieber said about what makes or doesn't make appropriate warfare, right? They will literally sack the town. They leave um, at least 183 people dead. They literally went into people's homes, kidnapped them, took them out into the streets, and just shot them in front of their families, right? So they are doing acts of kidnapping and murder and just setting houses on fire. And then they cross back over the Missouri River, back to safety. The U.S. military is not going to let this stand. They are going to respond quick and swift and hard doing what we call hard war tactics. We'll talk more about that next, um, next time. But right, essentially the U.S. military is going to go after anybody that they think was aiding and abetting William Quantrell. So they, too, will start to set um, homes ablaze along the Missouri River. Right? So when we see guerrilla warfare, the U.S. is often re- responding in kind with very aggressive tactics. Right? And your fun fact of the day is that Jesse James and Cole Younger were part of Quantrell's crew. Real fast, right? Mosby's Rangers are partisan rangers that are operating in Virginia. They are so successful. They're actually, um, Mosby is called the gray ghost of the Confederacy, right? He is John Singleton Mosby, and his um, rangers are the 43rd Battalion Cavalry. They are a thorn in the U.S. side throughout 1863, 1864, 1865, because they just seem to blend in to the countryside. So they go, attack, disappear. Sometimes they actually will wear blue U.S. Army uniforms, disguise themselves, go into camp, and then go after and kill or hurt or raid the camp. They often, often target U.S. troops that are in isolation. They are so successful that parts of Virginia, in northern Virginia and the Shenandoah Valley, are known as Mosby's Confederacy. So your takeaway right here, right, your final thoughts for the guerrilla war is that the guerrilla war is a series of ambushes and raids and irregular styles of combat. It is savage and chaotic and frenzied, right, and disorganized. But being a guerrilla had its benefits, like we said. It offered you more freedom, closer to your homes and families. You could defend your communities, right? But as I, you saw with Lawrence, Kansas, guerrilla war is going to pave its way for hard war that we'll talk more about next time. But in hard war, everything can become a a target, homes, farms, graze silos, railroads, because these are the things that are aiding and abetting your enemy, right? So fighting in the Civil War is going to result more than just in the conventional battles that we typically study. It's more than just in the fields and the woods. It involves guerrilla fighting, naval operations, and rivering operations. Thank you all. I know I'm at time. So I will answer your questions next time. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Looking for books to give as gifts this year? Listen to the About Books podcast. On this week's episodes, we talk to New York Times book review editor Pamela Paul about her latest book, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. 
and some of our notable books of the year. Find the About Books podcast and all of C-SPAN's podcasts wherever you get your podcasts.